Praise the name of the Lord. Good morning, PCF. Good morning, guests anywhere, anyone watching online, welcome, and God bless you all. Thank you to Pastor Daniel for that exhortation about giving, uh, a good word from a good man. And may I say also, just as a practical point, I'm, I'm so grateful for those who bring their gifts into the plates on Sunday morning, but you know, you can also give online, and if that is an easier way for you to give, or you are perhaps away at some point but still want to give then go to mypcf.org and give online. That's the way I give. And it's safe and reliable, and you can even set up a recurring gift. And that can be a very convenient thing for you as you give with joy to the Lord. So thank you for your gifts. Thank you not only for your, your financial gifts to support the work of the Lord in this church, but also for the gift of your time and talent and effort. And last night at our Break Every Chain event, we saw so many of the members of the church um, putting so much together for the Lord. Yes, amen, hallelujah. I particularly want to thank Sister Marianne and Pastor Henji for their visionary leadership of that. And uh, it, was a, it was really a profound moment. And in fact, there are some here today that were there last night that um, we welcome you this morning. Good to have you back. And uh, I want to say to PCF, there may be faces from last night, new to us in the coming weeks that you see. Uh, one thing that people always note about our church that they share with me when they come, newcomers and guests, is how welcome they feel here, how loved they feel here. And I'm, I'm very grateful to our congregation for being a people like that. We know it's the Lord, but I, I also want to say thank you and uh, encourage you to continue in that. Part of uh, the way that we show the love of the Lord, in fact, one of the most profound ways is in prayer. And so before I start the message this morning, there are a couple of things that the Lord has quickened in my heart as points of prayer and intercession for us. But before I even mention that, I also want to say something profound happened in worship this morning in this service. We had beautiful worship in the, at the first service too, but something really uh, special happened during our, our worship time this morning. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's a description of how the people of the Lord sang a new song. And that's a practice that happens among people as they gather together to worship the Lord. The psalm says, David the psalmist said, that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. That the presence of God is manifest as people praise him. And one of the things that becomes manifest, that becomes visible, palpable, audible, um, perceptible, is that the Holy Spirit moves on us in such a way that we are elevated and our worship becomes more than just people singing. It becomes the people of the Lord moving in the Spirit. I don't know if you heard it, but I heard that the quality of our sound and the nature and character of our worship changed into something even more heavenly. And that was simply a supernatural work of the Lord. But maybe you felt even within yourself something happening. You know, in the book of Second Chronicles chapter 20, there's a story of how the king, King Jehoshaphat, goes out with the army to fight the enemies of Israel, the enemies of the people of the Lord. And he selects from among the people singers who will go ahead of the army. They're the vanguard. They're the forefront of the army. And what they're singing is not just songs, but praise unto the Lord. And this is like what we talked about last night at Break Every Chain. It's what we engage in every week in worship. As the singers went out in front of the army, the scripture says that the Lord used their worship as a weapon to spark 
ambushes in the camps of the enemy. As we were worshiping the Lord today, the Lord was in our worship, actively tearing down strongholds in the spirit, actively producing breakthroughs. So it's not even necessarily what we feel, although having our feelings um, redeemed by the mind and the heart of the Lord is a very worthy thing. But it's also about what God is doing in the spirit. And you and I, we can't always see it. We can't always hear it. We can't always feel it. But when we are worshiping, we can be sure of this. God is doing it. God is doing a work in our worship. So we continue to worship him. And everything that we do in our lives can and should be worshiped to him. The giving of our funds, the giving of our time and talents, the raising up of prayers. So I come to the point of uh, intercessory prayer. And it's two things that are particularly timely today. One of them, both things I should say, are global in nature. They have a global impact. But one of them will happen within a few hours, within a few miles. And it's the Academy Awards. The reason I ask us to pray for this is not only because the eyes of the world turn to our city at this time, but also to remember what our city is. Los Angeles. It's a city of angels. And you know what angels are? Messengers. This is a city that even in its very name, and I think this is a God-ordained thing, because the name was given by people who named it in honor of God, whether you can bear that or not. That's the reality of the heart of those people. To call it a city of angels was to recognize a city that was dedicated to God. But the messengers of our city have a powerful role all over the world. Hollywood is not the only industry in this town, although sometimes we're thought of as a one-industry town. But it is an example of how profoundly Los Angeles impacts the culture around the world. Even if not everybody likes what L.A. has to say, and we may not like what L.A. has to say, the reality is almost everywhere around the world, people pay attention to what comes out of Los Angeles, particularly out of the media industry that has such strong presence here. My prayer, and I believe it's yours too, is that Los Angeles would be a city of messengers of God, that the message of God would be the thrust and the focus of our city. And that won't happen without prayer. But with prayer, it can happen. And it can be. So when the eyes and the ears of the world turn to L.A. tonight, let's pray that not only would God bring peace and safety to that event, but that God would take control of that event. That the name of the Lord and the will of the Lord would be revealed. And if you think that seems too extraordinary a thing to expect of Hollywood and of the Oscars, let me say... Our God is a God who does miracles. At the very least, what the Lord has said to us is, if my people who are called by my name will turn and pray to me, then I will move based on their intercession. So I would like us to pray for that event. And second event, or second uh, uh, prayer request, is global in nature and much further away. It's a hemisphere away. But it's very close, I think, to the heart of God and therefore should be close to ours. You're probably aware from the news that there's really a humanitarian crisis going on in Venezuela right now. I was on a conference call with probably thousands of others on Friday with Franklin Graham, the head of Samaritan's Purse, a Christian helps ministry with a global reach. He was in Sydney, actually, while we were on the call. He's the son of the, the well-known evangelist Billy Graham, who's now with the Lord. 
And also on the call was the uh, Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence. And he is making a trip to uh, Colombia, maybe in route already. I know he has a meeting scheduled tomorrow with regional leaders that is focused on uh, trying through uh, political and, uh, and uh, uh, I should say, uh, uh, well, the word escapes me, but through the mechanisms of global partnership to try and get aid into the country of Venezuela. The point of uh, my uh, asking us to pray about this is not political in nature. It has to do with the needs of the people in Venezuela. Whatever you may think about the current government situation there, the reality is a nation that was once one of the wealthiest in the Western Hemisphere is now so incredibly impoverished. There is a, such a desperate situation there. It's so difficult for people to get simply food, clothing, shoes, basic medical necessities, medication, that millions of people have left in recent years and um, millions more are expected to leave now. And they are having to leave in a very small uh, kind of uh, uh, narrow passageway that they're allowed to leave. And entire families can only take a single suitcase of possessions. And people are um, in desperate circumstances there. In fact, I'm told that the average Venezuelan has lost 20 pounds due to hunger in this period. That's really extraordinary. Also, there are millions of dollars worth of humanitarian aid and assistance, food, clothing, medications, literally lined up at the border. And you may have heard about this yesterday, but the military under the order of uh, uh, the former leader who has held on to power despite an election that voted him out, has actually shot at and even killed people that were trying to bring aid in. That's a, that's a violation of the Geneva Convention, by the way. But much more significantly, it's a violation of the heart of God. Whatever you may think about the political things involved, let me say it's never right for someone to hold back the basic necessities of life from a nation of people. And so we need to pray and ask for God to bring peace on the border, to allow aid to come into the country, and for justice and righteousness to be established. So I'd like to ask if we would pray for these two things now. Will you join me? Father God, we lift up the nation of Venezuela to you because we know you care about the people in that nation. And Lord, what we ask is that there would be freedom there. We ask that you would allow resource to enter into the country and that you would not allow anyone to by force hold back food, clothing, and medication from people who desperately need it. We pray, Lord, that there would be an end to the altercations and that there would be a release of the resource, the provision, and the help. We pray that you would give wisdom, Lord, to leaders in that region. And because, Lord, uh, we have leaders uh, like Vice President Mike Pence who specifically asked for prayer, that we would pray for him as he goes and that we would pray for your will to be done, we do that, Lord. We ask that you would give him wisdom and guidance and grace him to help further your will there. We pray for all of the leaders in this country, for the leaders of the Congress, Lord, for our judicial system everywhere in the system of the United States, Lord. We pray for justice and righteousness to prevail from you, and we pray that you would guide our leaders to help us to be the best contribution we can to peace and stability and righteousness around the world. We ask also, Lord, that here in our own city, you would watch over and protect the event of the Oscars tonight, that you would prevent anything evil or wicked from transpiring. Yes. And Lord, we pray that you would turn Los Angeles to a city which declares your message. Yes. 
We pray you would make us your angels of the gospel, Lord. And we pray that even tonight at that event, Lord, let your will be done. Let your name be praised. Let your word be spoken, Lord. And we will continue to pray that through you, Lord, Los Angeles would be blessed. That you would forgive us of sins and turn us towards righteousness. And that you would make us a mouthpiece of your good word to the world at large in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for praying. As we pray, the heart of God becomes clearer in us. It's interesting how prayer not only draws you closer to the heart of God, but reveals more of the heart of God within you. And if there was one word that we could use to summarize and describe the heart of God, that word would be love. It's the focus of our message today. In part four of our series on the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it is the first fruit that Paul names in his list of nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter five. And in fact, I've given you today a list of nine descriptors or aspects of love. Just like Paul's ninefold fruit is not exhaustive, it's a a selective characteristic list of the fruit of the Spirit, but does not include everything that can be said to be fruit of the Spirit. So also, this is not a list that includes everything that can be said about love. But it is, I think, characteristic of some of the key things that Scripture says about love, the love of God. And so we'll talk about those today. But let me mention to you that as I was preparing this message, I found that we could have a sermon specifically focused on love every week for 52 weeks of the year. And we would never come to the end of all that the Bible has to say about love and all the fruitfulness that we could find in discussing it. In fact, not only would we not be done talking about love, but we would have in that year had a very robust and varied and useful preaching calendar. Because in talking about love and looking at scriptures on love, we would still have had scriptures that teach us about marriage, about parenting, about discipleship, about the value of reading and learning and speaking the word, about evangelism, about fullness and baptism in the Holy Spirit, about healing and deliverance and salvation, about finances and good stewardship, about leadership. In fact, Virtually any and every subject that you and I could think of, if we simply spoke about love from the perspective of the Bible, we could speak to that subject. And that is because love is the irreducible element of the kingdom. Everything else boils down to that at heart. Everything in the word of God is at root based in love. The whole word of God is a message of love. And in fact, God himself is love. But, The nature of God's love, the character of God himself, is not always, as I mentioned last week, what we expect of love. And the way we talk about love as people in this world, the popular notions of love, they don't always reflect the truth of God. So today, part of our focus will be to really understand what is the nature and characteristic of God as love and the love that comes from God. When I say it's the irreducible element of the kingdom, I mean to say that this is an element which is at root of everything else and is also the focus and purpose of everything else. That is why the first two statements there about love refer to it as the cornerstone, commandment, 
and the capstone commandment. I'm going to say more about that in a moment, but I want to show you something first, something I think you'll enjoy. Last week I mentioned how God's been giving confirmation, how God uses things that we see or things that we hear throughout the week, throughout our days, to help ratify or encourage or edify or guide us. So this week, when we had had so much rain, and by the way, we had snow at my house this week. In fact, we had snow here in L.A. for the first time in decades. I believe God's doing a mighty work. We said last year was the year of living water. I guess this is the year of freezing water. It's certainly been freezing temps, freezing cold, but the love of the Lord brings warmth to our heart. And I want to show you what the Lord showed me on Monday morning after I dropped my kids off from school. I came through my patio, and here was the rainwater drying on this little table. We, we have this little table left over from when the kids were little. I don't even know why we still have it. I guess it was so the Lord could give me a message. I dropped the kids off at school. I was coming home, and I was going to start working more on this sermon. So love was at the forefront of my mind. And as I walked past the patio, I saw that the water that had been pooled all over had started to dry. And as it dried, it dried into this shape. Now, we talked about Hollywood you may think it's Mickey Mouse. It's not. I don't want to get in trouble with Disney. It's a heart. Nobody made it that way. It's just a natural uh, result of the drying process. Although I must say, I've never seen it dry like that before. Usually it's just kind of a muddy, ugly puddle. But here it was a heart. A water sign for me and for you. God wants to speak to us today about his love. Because he loves us. As I mentioned, there are so many verses that we can look at, and we're going to look at a number, but there's three particular verses that I want to give right at the forefront of our message as kind of a backbone to the, to the whole message, a, a, a fundamental description about the primacy and the centrality of love in the economy of God. And it's probably the best-known verse in the entire Bible. If you don't know any other verse, you probably know John 3.16. Will you read it with me? Let's read it aloud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the love of God. Think about this. Jesus said that the love that he and the Father shared from before the founding of time, was so deep and so perfect. It can't even be expressed, I think, in words. Jesus said, no one knew the Son like the Father, and no one knows the Father like the Son, and yet they reveal one another to us. The Spirit reveals the Son to us. The Son reveals the Father to us. But that extraordinary love that is within God himself, it means that even if God had never created anything, if God was just God, and that was all there was was God, it would be more than enough, and it would be love, because he is love, love within himself. And yet that is the love he was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to put to death his only begotten son, to put at odds and at enmity his son, to make his son the subject of sin because of his love for us, for you. That is his love for you and I. His willingness to sacrifice his own love so that you and I could receive it. That's an extraordinary expression 
of the love of God. This is why John says in 1 John 4, love comes from God. In fact, we're reminded in 1 John 4, 19, the only reason we love is because He first loved us. And here in verses 7 and 8, He makes it clear, if you do not love, you don't know God because God is love. Will you say that? God is love. Dios hay pag God is love. That's what He is. Love is the expression of God because that's the nature and person of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes an entire letter, excuse me, an entire chapter of his letter about love. It's often called the love chapter. And in it, he makes clear that no matter what else we might have, even if we have an extraordinary gift of prophecy, even if we understand all the mysteries of God, and even if we know the word of God inside and out, even if we have every ability to express and teach everything about God, but we lack within ourselves the love of God, it's all nothing. It's worthless. But if we have love, we have something irreducible, indestructible, eternal, because the love of God never fails. It is the greatest of all things, love. And that is why I also say it is the greatest commandment. In fact, Jesus was asked by a religious scholar, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responded with two verses out of the Torah, out of the Old Testament Pentateuch. One out of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You know what that means? It's not just saying, love God, love God, love God. Although there is that wonderful Mediterranean method of repeating in order to intensify and underline. But notice that with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind has real practical implications. To love the Lord your God with all your heart does not mean just with all of your emotion, but it means with the dedication to say, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to care about what God cares about. I'm going to look to his word for guidance, and then I'm going to act on it. To love God with all your mind means I'm going to study to show myself approved as a student of the word. I'm going to pay attention to God, asking questions, asking for help. I'm going to use the intellect God has given me to search out and seek out the things of God. With all your soul means all of yourself. I'm going to belong to God. I'm not going to consider myself my own. I'm going to say this life belongs to God. Everything in it belongs to Him. I don't live for myself. I live in His hands. In fact, I trust Him to save me because He's my only hope. That's loving God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. I call it a cornerstone commandment because in the ancient building technique, a cornerstone was the first stone of the foundation to be set. And it was in the corner because it would set the angle for the entire building. A cornerstone was carefully measured and carefully chiseled. And this was back in the time when people had to do all of this by hand and without any CAD program or any kind of computer imaging. It had to be done with careful measuring, and much labor, and it was a heavy stone. Once it was set, it was not going to be easily moved. In fact, 
Usually for a significant sized building, a cornerstone required multiple teams of strong men to put it into place. So a cornerstone is a very significant aspect because the whole building is going to stand or fall based on if the cornerstone is strong enough, if it's set in the right place, and if it's truly square. Jesus is giving us a commandment that is the bedrock of faith. He's saying, if you don't have this in place, you don't have anything to stand on. And if it isn't shaped according to the truth of God, your whole building is going to fall over. But if it's the foundation of God, then not only will you stand strong, but you will grow straight. The second one is the first stone that goes on top of it. So Jesus says, that's the cornerstone. And the next thing that rests right on top of it, that provides the first of construction is love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, really, these are the foundations. You love God. And the way that you love God is to love people around you, to show love to people around you as God does. That's out of Leviticus 19. Jesus said all of the law and the prophets, everything else about the Hebrew Bible, and of course, it's true, everything about the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is founded upon this. But I want to show you that that suggestion that it's not only the cornerstone foundation of the Old Testament, but also the capstone of the New Testament. I will say very quickly here something about cornerstone and capstone, and I'll, I'll make an apology. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself, and maybe it should be, and someday it will be. But I want to just very briefly mention that in the scriptures, there's a lot of interplay between cornerstone, capstone, and keystone. Three different kinds of stones that were used in ancient construction. And they each have an interrelationship because they're all part of making a strong, firm foundation and a strong, straight building. But a particular point here that I want to emphasize is what God is saying about love as a bedrock foundation is also paralleled with what God is saying about it as our focus. It's not only where we come from, the root that we draw our strength from, but it's also what we're aiming for, the fruit that demonstrates the truth and reality of God. In Psalm 118, we are told that this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. We know that the psalmist is talking about Jesus. Even if the psalmist didn't realize that he was looking forward prophetically, the Lord did know. Jesus himself quotes this scripture and says that he's that stone. He's the stone that God gave to make a firm foundation for the creation of the church of God on this earth. That is the people of God, a people formed in God's image and conformed to the likeness of Christ. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, but God still elevated him. In Mark 12 and Luke 20, Jesus quotes this as being about himself. In Acts chapter 4, the early Christians recognized this quote from Psalms as about being about Jesus. Peter does the same in 1 Peter 2.7. It's obviously a cornerstone verse. And it is a capstone verse too. Look at Zechariah chapter 4. These are in the days in which the uh, people of Judah are returning from exile. They've been exiled to Babylon. But now God has done a great work and is bringing them back. And he has elevated one of the leaders of uh, Judah, Zerubbabel, to be a governor 
at that time and to be part of the rebuilding of the temple that was destroyed in those days. And the prophet Zechariah says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. In other words, Zerubbabel was one of those who set the cornerstone of a new foundation in place. His hands will also complete it. Recognize that this is prophetically talking about Jesus. It's using the real-life example of Zerubbabel some 500 years before Jesus to give a parallel, a prophetic picture of who Jesus is. The one who lays the foundation of the temple is also the one who will place its crowning stone on top. In fact, here in Zechariah, the chosen capstone is a word that elsewhere can be translated as a plumb stone. In other words, literally a lead rock that is taken from the top of a place and lined down so that you can see that there is a true, even plumb line. So you can see that, yes, the foundation is straight and the building is straight. You see the, the, the prophetic image here. The love of God is a foundation that we build on. And in fact, it's the only foundation that we can build on. No one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11. But the one who began that work is also the one who finishes it. It's a work in you. You're living stones, according to Peter. You and I, as members of the body of Christ, we are being built into a spiritual temple. Jesus is our foundation but he is also our sure reward. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. And so is his love. The love of God is the beginning of our faith and the love of God is the focus and the purpose of our faith. So in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that love is not only the greatest commandment, love is also the latest commandment. Will you turn to the person next to you and say, love is the latest and the greatest. A new command I give you, Jesus says to his disciples, and this is right before he goes to the cross. This is his new command. It's an old one. Love one another. In fact, we might wonder, why does he say it's a new command if it is an old command? Because the, covenant, the old covenant of God was based in love and founded upon love every bit as much as the new covenant of God is based in love and founded on love. God doesn't change. There's no shadow of turning in him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews 13.8 says. The new is for us. He's replacing our heart of stone with a new heart of flesh. It's not new of God. It's new of us. And it's new in this. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our plumb line. Jesus is the one who shows us the straight and narrow path by which the building of our lives can be strong. He says, as I have loved you, so love one another. The newness is now you've seen it. John said in chapter one of his gospel, no one had ever seen God at any time except that Jesus Christ reveals him. So Jesus says, now that you've seen me, you've seen the father. Now that you've been loved by me, love one another. And this way, everyone will see that you belong to me. This will be the fruit. Remember we talked about how Jesus said, they'll know you by your fruit. And the first fruit is love. Love is what first and foremost and abidingly demonstrates the reality of the Holy Spirit at work within us. 
Love is the first fruit. Look again with me at Galatians chapter 5 and notice that when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, love comes first. It's the foundation of everything else. I will talk more about this in weeks to come as we continue in this series, but I'd like to suggest that in a very real way, love is simply described by each of the following fruit. If you want to know what the love of God is, the love of God, the agape of God, that's the word in the Greek there, is joy. The joy of the Lord that provides strength to you. The love of God is peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding that guards your hearts and minds in the power of Christ Jesus. The love of God is forbearance. It's patient and kind. You begin to hear Paul again from uh, this 1 Corinthians 13 love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Here he's saying the same thing. Love is goodness. The justice of God is fulfilled by his love. And his love loves justice and goodness. Love of God is faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, temperance, the ability to, as Pastor Hinge preached about on Friday night here in this sanctuary, deny the flesh in order to walk in the Spirit. That's a fruit of love as well as of the Spirit. And there's no law against these things. If you and I try to live according to the law, we fall short of the law. But if we walk in the Spirit and love blossoms in us, not only is there no law against it, but we fulfill the law of love. And in that, every other good and righteous thing is achieved. So love is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is that foundation, and it's also the pinnacle of our path. Love leads us in a direction. But it must be said, love ain't easy. And I think there's more than one song that says something along the lines of love hurts. (laughs) Love is the essence of holy sacrifice. Do you know one reason why we as people are sometimes not inclined to love the way God loves? Because it hurts. Because it requires us to give up, to sacrifice. Because in loving someone else, especially someone who doesn't deserve it, and if you're loving a human being, any human being other than Jesus doesn't deserve it. And we didn't love Jesus. We were the ones in the crowd. You say, well, I wasn't born yet. You weren't born in the Garden of Eden yet either. But you and I have a sin nature that means we would have been just as confused and just as likely to oppose God. And you know how I know that? Because we opposed him in our own lives and our own ways anyway. We all did it anyway. Each one of us has put a nail into the hand of Jesus Christ because it was our sins that put him on that cross. So even if we weren't there present, our sin was. We didn't love him, he loved us. We love him now because he loved us, but we recognize something. His kind of love costs. It bleeds. It weeps. It grieves it goes to the cross. But there's holiness in that. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. To give up your own way because the love of God calls you 
That is holy sacrifice. Romans says in chapter 12 that we are to be a living sacrifice. But part of that sacrifice is picking up the cross. And the cross is loving, being vulnerable, showing love when it isn't going to be shown to us in return, showing love the way God loves because it's the defining trait of God. Love is the defining aspect and trait and characteristic of God. We've already read how in 1 John 4, 8, John said God is love. That love comes from God. That if we don't love, we haven't been born of God and we don't know God. And that love that... John is talking about here, that the scripture is talking about here, is not something self-generated. You can't just go out and say, well, I'm going to be more loving. I'm just going to, I'm going to produce that. I'm going to produce more loving. I was so pleased um, when Pastor Daniel preached on Wednesday night that he talked about how in John 15, the, the goal for us is not to bear more fruit. The goal for us is to abide in Christ. We can't produce the fruit on our own. But what we can do is we can abide in the character and the nature of God. And we can invite and accept and allow the nature and character of God to be in us. And that will produce the fruit. In other words, we don't produce it on our own, but God, who has made the sacrifice for us, has also given his love to us. Therefore, since it is the defining characteristic of God, it must be the definitive characteristic of the disciple. If a disciple is one who follows the pattern, right? If you and I are living stones, we're following the pattern of the cornerstone. And we know that we're following that pattern if the plumb stone says that we are following it straightly. And we know that we'll reach the capstone if we are loving in the way that God loves. So it must be the definitive act of discipleship. But here, Jesus is very specific and helpful to us. Loving God is not just feeling ooey-gooey, touchy-feely, warm and cozy feelings. Let me tell you something. You can feel that all you want. But if you do not do what God says, if you don't care about His Word, read it and then actually implement it in your life, asking Him for His help and His Spirit, it doesn't matter how warm and fuzzy you feel. You don't know Him. And that's not me saying that, that's him saying that. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. So if you don't, you don't love me. But if you do keep my commands, then you'll be loved by my Father and me too, and we'll show you our love. Now, look, it's not about keeping them perfectly. Vanessa Bundock, who spoke uh, at the gathering last night, mentioned how she'd struggled with the spirit of perfectionism. Jesus said, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And she had taken that to mean for a long time that it meant do everything right and never do anything wrong. And that would be the law. And we are without hope. But the grace of God is what he is asking us to do is to love him perfectly. Which means not that you never make a mistake in your step, but that you are dedicated to following him. He understands that you and I stumble, and there is grace and forgiveness for that. What there is not grace and forgiveness for is not to follow him at all. There's no grace and forgiveness for that because there's no love in that. It's not God just saying, being mean, and saying, I'll give the reward to people I like, but not to people I don't. He's saying, I am the reward. 
I am love. I am life. I am truth. So if you don't follow me, I don't have anything to offer you. There's nothing for you but death. Because I'm the only good that there is. I'm the only God that there is. And if you want me, you can have all of me, but you've got to go my way. That's the message of love as obedience. That's what people will recognize. The fruit of that kind of love. Love that obeys God at a cost. Love that obeys God not for a reward, but for no other reason than the fact that we love God. Because he loved us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus in Matthew 7. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So obedience is love. It's not just an example or evidence of love. Jesus says it's the love itself. (laughs) I don't want to say that Jesus doesn't care about your feelings. But I do want to warn each one of us to remember this. God doesn't care if you feel warm and fuzzy towards him if you don't follow his will and word in your life. There are people that come before Jesus, according to Jesus himself, and say, but Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And Lord, we heal people in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I don't know you. Who are those people? Those are people who had the feeling that they were right with God. But what they didn't have was a dedication to obey God. And you say, you know, well, what they're described as doing sounds good. Yes, it does. But you know what? Those are God's works. God can do them through a donkey. God can do them through a stone. It's no miracle to God that people do that in his name. It's his name. But what he cares about is, where is your heart? And if your heart is not with me, then nothing of you is with me. He's not looking for people to do works. He's looking to give his works to people who love him. And he is so good that he will even do his works through people who don't love him. That's the goodness of God. But what a tragedy it would be if you and I were among those who come before the throne of Christ on Judgment Day and find out that we just thought we were right with God. We never paid enough attention to actually obeying his word. Yeah, it's scary. And it should be. But hallelujah, we are not given a spirit of fear, but of adoption. God says, if you want to obey, I'll make you able to obey. Just want it, and I'll do it. That's because of his promise, his covenant commitment. Isang pangako ng tipan. A covenant commitment. Sorry po for my bad development. It's a promise from God founded upon himself, not upon our works. So we can't boast about it. We don't need to worry about it because the promise is founded upon God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we are told it was because the Lord loved you and kept his oath to your ancestors. His promise, not even to you, but to the people who came before you, to the people that you come from. He made a promise to them and he redeemed you because of his promise. In the context of this passage, the Lord is saying, I didn't choose you because you were faithful. I didn't choose you because you're stronger than other nations or because you look better or even because you are better. I chose you because I made a promise and I keep my promises. I chose you because I wanted to, because I want you. And that is the same word that comes to you and I, because that promise to Israel reaches to us, even though we are not Israel by birth in the flesh, we are Israel by birth in the spirit. By being born into Jesus Christ, reborn 
we're born into this promise. And God is faithful. He keeps his covenant of love for generation upon generation to those who love him and obey. You see, to those who love him really in spirit and in truth. And truth is at the heart of love. This is number eight of nine. So we're getting there and that's the truth. <laughs> but this one, this one can't be glossed over. Love and truth are two sides of the same coin. You can't separate them. They're the same currency. Truth and love are bound together. If we have what we call love, but it isn't true, it isn't love. And if we think something is true, but there's no love of God in it, then it isn't true. In order to be true, there must be love. In order to be loved, there must be truth. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says to the people of God, that's you and I, speak the truth in love. We often understand this to mean when you have something difficult to say to somebody, say it in a nice way. Be gracious in how you say it. Well, that's, that's not only not bad advice, that's good advice. But it's not particularly what Paul is saying here. It's valuable, and I hope you'll implement it. But what Paul is saying is, when you speak love, it will be truth. In fact, you could actually um, phrase this statement the other way around. Speak the love in truth. What he's saying is, you must speak the truth to each other or else you don't love God and you don't love each other. If you are not willing to speak truth to each other, you don't have real love for each other. And so don't be afraid to say the thing that is hard if it is born of God's love. God says hard things to us. He doesn't say them in harsh ways, but he doesn't pull his punches. He speaks plainly. His yes is yes. His no is no. But he speaks in love. And there is graciousness in the way that God speaks to us because God is gracious and God is patient and God is kind, but God is never dishonest. God does not hold back from saying, here is something that I don't like and it needs to go. Here is something that you did and it was wrong. Here is something that you need to forgive on their part and I won't be pleased with you until you do it. That's love. That's love straight from the mouth of God. And if you and I are to show love to one another, then we also should be guided by God's word to speak the truth in love. It doesn't mean that you air every complaint and critique that you have. But what it does mean is if you see the scriptures being violated in someone's life, if you see somebody standing in opposition to the ways of God and they are part of the body of Christ, I'm not talking about people in the world. Of course, people in the world do that. We, we, we pray for those people. We don't expect them to understand that. We can share the truth with them, and that's loving. But we don't call them to account for living like a Christian. But we must call one another to account for living like a Christian. And if we don't, we don't love each other. Amen. And you may say, well, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. You don't have to hurt somebody's feelings if you speak the truth in love. But oftentimes, what you're really looking to spare you and me is our own feelings. We're afraid of how someone is going to respond, what they're going to think of us, what we're going to have to face. And what the Lord says is, that's not love, that's fear. That's self-serving. There's no courage in that. There's no honesty in that. There's no conviction in that. Speak the truth in love. And if we do, 
then look, every member of the body individually will be like a stone being added onto that cornerstone until the whole building is love itself. Because that's what we're being made into. Living stones in a temple of God, a temple of love. But if we don't have truth, we don't have the plumb line. If we don't have the truth, no matter how good it looks, we will lose the shape of God. And if we fall into the fallacy of this world that says love looks like what I want it to look like and we start shaping that stone to look like us, let me tell you something. No one can lay a foundation other than the one laid by Christ. The reality is you cannot make Christ conform to you. If you're not going to be conformed to Christ, the only thing you're really doing is building on the sand. Jesus in Matthew 7 told the story in the same context. There was a man who built his house on the stone and it was the cornerstone of Christ. But there was another man who built his house on the sand. They both looked great and they both were the same until the flood came. But when the flood came, that's when the house built on sand fell because it wasn't built according to the plumb line of truth. It doesn't matter whether you and I like the truth of God. It's the only thing that will stand. But you and I would be wise to recognize that we want to be shaped according to his truth and not try and make him over into ours. That's the way of making idols, and that's a way of death. The way of life is to embrace the love that is God according to his truth, according to his ways, which is the irreducible and eternal aspect of not only God the king, but of his entire kingdom. And so in conclusion, I want to read Simply read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to you in the New International Version. And as I do so, may the Word of God and the love of the Word of God minister to our hearts to shape our hearts just like He shaped that water on the table, to form our hearts into the image of Christ and the likeness of God. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I talked like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Listen, love builds us up. Love grows us up. Love matures us. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror darkly, 
then we shall see face to face. We shall see love face to face when we see God face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known and I shall fully know. The love of God will be fully realized in me and you. And so now these three remain. They are eternal. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, the irreducible, indestructible, eternal element is love. Faith is formed out of love. Hope is shaped in love. Love is greatest because love is in them all. And his love is in you today. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you, Lord, that your love covers the multitude of our sins. We're reminded, Jesus, of your words to the church in Revelation chapter 2 when you said, return to your first love. We know the warning that in the last days the love of many would grow cold. And we confess, Lord, we've allowed our own love to falter and flag, to flicker, to smolder, sometimes to go out. We confess, Lord, that we have violated your love. That that description of you and your love in 1 Corinthians 13, it's like the antithesis of so much of what we've done. If love is patient, we've been impatient. If love is kind, we've been cruel. If love keeps no record of wrongs, we confess that we've kept long record of wrongs and used it too many times. We've been quick to anger when love is slow to anger. But Lord, you forgive. We confess and you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nevertheless, Lord, what we ask is that your love would blossom in us. We pray that you would give us your love. Show us your truth. Shape us according to your plumb line. Build us up according to your blueprint. Join us together in love. Give us the courage to speak the truth in love to one another. Give us the patience and grace to bear with one another and be patient with one another, remembering that our love for one another also covers the multitude of sins. And Lord, if there is someone we need to forgive right now, we ask that supernaturally you would do that in us. We say, choose to forgive. We want to forgive. And even if it's someone we've lifted up to you many times before and said, I forgive, we, if they're coming to our mind now, we're lifting them back up and saying, Lord, I forgive them. Maybe it's something, friend, where you need to go and tell that person, I prayed to forgive you. Maybe it's something where you need to write down, I forgive and I forget and I no longer keep a record of this wrong and you throw it into the fire and let the love of God burn it away. If there is something you need to ask forgiveness from someone for, and the Lord's showing that to your heart right now, it's a message of love from him to you. He wants you to be free. And he knows that you won't be free until you ask for the forgiveness of that person.
you can ask him for forgiveness, but you need to go to that person you wronged and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It doesn't matter if it was yesterday or 50 years ago. And if you can't possibly reach that person, all things are possible with God, but if they're dead, if they're a world away, if you don't have any number for them, if it's truly impossible, then you simply lift it up to the Lord and say, Lord, in their stead, I ask that you would forgive me on their behalf. Don't just ask God for forgiveness. Ask for the forgiveness of the one that you wronged so that the love of God can be alive in you. Jesus has said, this is necessary. He has said, it is essential. So be sure to do it. Now, don't let shame hold on to you anymore. Don't let guilt hold on to you anymore. Don't hold on to hatred or resentment anymore. But let the love of the Lord into every aspect of your heart and life. Let the word of the Lord teach you what his love really is. Let the spirit of the Lord show you what his love is really like. Let the people of the Lord help form you. And you make your contribution to the people of the Lord too. So that in the unity of faith, we may be built up together. And if there's anyone here present or listening online or at any point in the future and you recognize the love of the Lord is reaching out to you, but you've never really given your heart to him or it's been a long time that you walked away from him. I want you to know the love of the Lord reaches out to you right now and you can simply say, I receive your love, Lord. I believe, but forgive me of my sin. Take my life. Take all of my life. I may not understand how I'm going to follow you. I may not know all of what your word says, but I'm committed to learning about that. I want to belong to you. If that's your prayer, friend, you are sealed in the love and the heart of the Lord right now and forever in Jesus' name. And for everyone who has prayed, let the love of the Lord be in me. Let the love of the Lord lead and guide me. The word of the Lord to you is, it shall be done. Even as you have prayed and as your faith has believed, it shall be done for you and you will bear much fruit, fruit of the spirit and fruit of his love in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah.